Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 20. Have you wanted to generate advanced reports as PDFs using Python? Maybe you want to have documents generated with tables, images, or fillable forms. This week on the show, we have Mike Driscoll to talk about his book, Report Lab, PDF Processing with Python. Mike's an author of multiple books about Python and has recently rewritten his Python 101 book. He's also a member of the Real Python team and has written several articles for the site. Along with our discussion about Report Lab and PDFs, Mike talks about being a self-published author, and we also talk about his favorite Python GUI framework. So let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about being an author and all the different books that you've written. I was wondering if you would want to start off and just talk a little bit about your Python 101 book. I heard you were maybe revising it. Is that right? Yeah. uh, The original intention was to revise it. After looking it over, I decided that doing a a rewrite was in order. So that's what I'm working on right now. Okay. What are the types of things that you're you're updating in it? Well, when I was first looking at at doing the revision, I was like, well, dictionaries are now ordered and... There are new types of distributing packages that they weren't available five years ago. You know, the, the, the market has changed enough in the Python packages world that it's not just PyInstaller and Py2Xe. There's also Nutka and a couple of other, and Briefcase, I think. Yeah. It's come a long way. And I'm like, I don't have any of that coverage in the original Python 101. So that kind of like destroys an entire section of my original book. And I was like, well, if I wanted to change that, I'm going to toss out these old modules that are no longer supported. I, I And in the original book, I was talking about uh, config object, which maybe you haven't heard of, but it's a neat replacement for a config parser. But uh, Michael Ford doesn't really support config object anymore, as far as I can tell. So I'm like, well, I probably shouldn't be talking about that, even though I still think it's superior to config parser. So, you know, it's just like, man, I have to chop up my book. And so I decided to just rewrite it. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's hard. Are are there things that you're excited about changing in that process? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I like, I mean, so, you know, five years ago, Python 101 was my first book. Okay. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just kind of flew by the seat of my pants the whole time I was doing it. And now I've been writing for six, well, writing books for, I guess it's been six years now, not five. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> And I've improved a lot and I've worked with real Python and I've seen how they write and I've worked with two publishers since then. So I've got all this new knowledge of how to write that I didn't have before. So I was like, no, if I'm going to just do bits and pieces in the book, I might as well rewrite the whole thing so that it's consistent in its style and tone. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, so I was excited to see how it would flow now, you know, will it look better? Will it be worse? Am I even going to get that kind of feedback from anyone? Because who's going to want to read the first edition and the second edition, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. But So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited because I'm adding some new chapters. Like, in the first one, I only covered threading. That's when I'm covering threading and multiprocessing. It sounds pretty deep for a 101 book. <laughs> yes. This is the thing about Python 101 that a lot of people don't understand, is that I wanted to teach Python 101, which is, like, just the first part of the book. There's another three or four parts to the book. And those other parts get into intermediate and more meatier topics because I found when I was reading all those beginner books when I first started doing Python that, oh, now I know the syntax, but I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. When I got done with the book. And I'm like, well, I hated that. So I was like, I'm going to write a book that I would have wanted when I was learning Python that actually teaches you to do something beyond the basics. Yeah, that I, I think that's exciting. That definitely would be something that I would be looking for, you know, as a even an intermediate developer now, so I'm, I know you have a Python two hundred two book, one hundred two or two two hundred one. Sorry. <laughs> so in that book, where does it take off from there? So two hundred one, 
focuses only on intermediate and advanced, more advanced topics. So, you know, you're learning about, it goes more deep into multiprocessing and threading. It talks about uh, descriptors, decorators. Okay. Topics that, you know, you don't normally need to use every day, but that you'll eventually use once you've mastered the basics in Python 101, basically. Does that have similar ending section there where you get into more project kind of stuff? It should, and I might end up doing that, but um, right now it does not. It just kind of covers, it covers stuff that like the collections module and, and, okay. and other modules that I thought would, would help people like ITER tools, stuff like that. And it just helps kind of like shine a spotlight on, hey, these are more advanced or at least intermediate level stuff that I was told by the Python community, these are intermediate levels, so this is what should be covered. And so I just included those. And Okay. You seem to be into creating graphical user interfaces, and you have a, a couple books. And then you have several articles on RealPython now. <laughs> One we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago on the podcast was your PySimple GUI article. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I'm in the process of creating a video course for your WX Python, which is taking me a little while since I've got some new responsibilities there at RealPython. And then uh, another one on Kivi. Um, do you have a favorite GUI framework? Um, my favorite is still uh, WX Python, I think. Okay. What is it that you like about it? Well, when I was first looking into doing GUI in Python, I was trying to translate a VBA app into Python, basically. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, a VBA for applications that was based on, you know, adding a GUI to your Excel spreadsheet or to, uh, Microsoft Access. And my boss didn't want to keep paying Microsoft to break our code every time they upgraded. <laughs> so, right. So we, he wanted us to translate to Python. And I looked and I looked. And uh, TK, TK Enter, TK Enter, whatever they call it. Yeah. I didn't, they didn't have the widgets that you need to make it look like Microsoft. Okay. To be like, kind of look like it would sit next to the other applications and not be this really strange looking. Yeah, so, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't have a very good a notebook solution. It didn't have a good table solution. Okay. I, I notebooks are better. I might be mis misspeaking there, but I know it didn't have a good table solution or a good list. Really, kind of a what do I call it, a list control. I didn't like their list control solution very much. So I evaluated Debix Python and PyQt, and PyQt had a really big cost to it the time it's for commercial stuff yeah it it seems like it really jumps into that very quickly yeah and my boss was like nope so i went with david python and yeah it, it worked really good and the community was crazy welcoming and very helpful and so that's so that's kind of why i stuck with it the only downside to david python is it's basically like three guys maybe who work on it so yeah uh, the bus factor is unfortunately high on that one the what factor? Sorry. The bus factor, you know, somebody might, if somebody quits the project or gets hit by a bus, they won't, that's, oh. the project will die, you know? <laughs> wow. I haven't heard that term. <laughs> I've got a different term for uh, bus ideas, which is uh, this idea of, and you can use it for other things, but I, I knew a friend who worked at a music store and she had this concept of this idea that we're all on a bus together and we're traveling through time. Mm. And some people get off in 1975 and that's their music. They got off the bus. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, then the rest of us are keep kind of keep going and, and so forth. And, <laughs> but I, I feel that is that way with technology sometimes too, right? Where people just like, you know, I, I knew this guy, you know, speaking about, you know, Microsoft and visual basic and, you know, he created these applications and, you know, all his stuff was at this point of all being sunset and so forth. And he's like, whatever, I got off the bus, you know, <laughs> Yeah. and didn't want to keep moving forward, which is kind of hard with Python too. In some ways it, it just keeps moving, you know, hence all the changes you have to add to your one one book and keep it updated with that. And I would imagine that with GUIs kind of the same thing with the, Oh my gosh, just like whether they're changing the Mac interface again, <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the nice thing about JBX Python is that it wraps the native widgets. So, oh, good. Yeah. You know, it is not, and the, the library itself doesn't have a huge bunch of changes all the time. So, you know, stuff that I've written even 10 years ago, all I've had to do is upgrade it for Python 3 and it works, you know? So, oh, good. 
I have a question about that and then its relation to PySimple GUI. It seemed as though PySimple GUI can sort of sit on top of some of these other frameworks and provide sort of a abstraction layer to that. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Um, have you used it with uh, WX Python then? I know it kind of defaults to T Kinter, if that's right. Correct. So um, I haven't tried it with WX. I, I think I played with it with QT because so the guy who created it, who I've talked to a few times, he said that the idea is to wrap other frameworks so that he can you can use the same you know PySimple GUI interface, but you get the the widget sets of the other right. the other uh, frameworks. So he has to- completely wrapped Tkinter. He has only partially wrapped Tkinter because it's so big. Right. Okay. He's only wrapped, you know, a handful of the widgets there so far. And I think he's got a pretty good wrapping of the core widgets of PyQt. So if I was going to use it, I'd probably use it with Qt first because it's just better wrapped right now. Has more has more uh, coverage or whatever you want to call it as far as the types of widgets and things that you might end up using. Correct. Okay. Cool. In your day-to-day work, how often are you building things with WX Python? <laughs> Unfortunately, not all that often. Um, I, I sometimes will do it for like a hackathon for my work, but it's more of just hobby stuff right now. Whereas, you know, my previous role, I did write a fair bit of WX Python applications for the, for my company. Okay. So what is what's the more common Python tasks that you're doing at your work now? Right now, they call me an automated test engineer. So I'm in charge of our, a custom-made uh, Python test framework for a C++ embedded application. Okay. And so those are like embedded hardware. Is that right? Yes. So we, des- we design um, a, a basically a tractor control system that maps, you know, as you seed, plant, spray, and all that good stuff, it shows it on the screen. And so I write test software that tests all the different configurations and all the buttons and widgets that are on screen. Okay, cool. I guess you're in the right place uh, living in Iowa then. Yeah. <laughs> For some of this, yeah. I have a uh, extended family. My my wife's family's from, from Iowa also, from a little town called Cherokee. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I've, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's very small. <laughs> Tooled around there and, you know, went all the different, you know, farmlands and very interesting to see that get, you know, technology added to all those things, to tractors and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't realize how much tech went into the tractors and farming in general. So you recently restarted uh, your YouTube channel. How's that going? Part of me is like, I'm really excited about it. And the other part of me is like, wow, this is kind of a slow, slow, tight, slow, um, slow burn is what I want to say. Yeah. Are there things that you've, find challenging in trying to make video content? Well, it took me a long time to find the right mic setup. Okay. So that it would actually record correctly. And I finally figured out that I needed an arm on my desk so that I could position Like a my, boom kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. So I could position my mic where I needed it. Because before, I, I just couldn't seem to find the right distance from my face to get, the, get it to record correctly. And once that, that was solved, it's been a lot easier. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird to like, like a mic stand sitting on, or a little, you know, tiny one sitting on your desk. And then it picks up all the sound of you typing and clicking and, or it's like in the way of the screen. Yes. That was my, <laughs> so I still think it picked up too much of my typing. So I try to use Jupyter notebook when I can to do the, do the presentation of the code. Cause then it's just me hitting the space bar basically. Yeah. I think that's an interesting pr- presentation technique. I definitely see that being used in a lot of the conferences Again, probably partly because of the amount of time <laughs> that you're going to have to show these concepts, but you can still sort of have it run the code to see it sort of, you know, translate into something. Yeah, it works for cert- for the Python 101 stuff that I've been doing uh, lately, and it works really good for um, the Jupyter Notebook presentations I've been doing. Yeah. But, you know, if I want to, I, I've done a couple of WX Python tutorials, and you can't use it with that, obviously. So those are more... You know, working in an editor and then showing the output type thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> You're going to have to change it up for that. So one of the things I, I wanted to have you talk about was your book about Report Lab. When did you put that one out? Um, I believe that came out in the summer of 2018. Okay. Who did you see as the audience for the for that book? Well, so I, you know, I watched the statistics for my blog and I see that 
an article I wrote, I think almost 10 years ago, about it's a report lab tutorial, kind of a step-by-step one. And it has been like my top article for years. Oh, wow. And I was like, dude, I think it's still in my top five, even now. And other report lab-ish or just uh, PDF-related articles have met, have been for long periods of time in my top 10. I think I have two, two or three right now that are still PDF related that are in my top 10. And I was like, there's obviously a market for learning about how to use PDFs with Python. Yeah, definitely. And Report Lab has been the most uh, comprehensive way to create PDFs that I've ever seen in Python. And I wanted to focus on Report Lab because there is no other book. I don't even think it's hardly mentioned in any other books on that topic. And then the, the other libraries, PyPDF2 and uh, PDFRW, also weren't covered very well in books. So to me, I was like, oh, I'm just going to try it. We'll see if the Kickstarter works. And if it does, then I will continue writing. If it doesn't, then I'm not sure what I'll do, but I might continue writing. But in the end, it, everyone there was enough interest that I went ahead and wrote it. All out. In general, you've used Kickstarter a couple times now. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I use it for my self-published books to mostly check and see, kind of get a reading of the audience. Is there enough interest that this is worth pursuing? Is it kind of a tepid interest? Sometimes I, I already have in my mind, I'm like, well, if it fails, I'm going to write it anyway, because I'm interested in writing it. But Sure. So do you set the goal maybe a touch lower in that case to make sure that it, it creates? Or do you have a strategy? Well, <laughs> uh, my... <laughs> My strategy is to make enough that I can pay what I've already spent. So like getting the artwork done is not cheap. And okay. so I make sure that I cover my artwork and I make sure that I cover any ISBN type, you know, charges that I know I'm going to have to do if the book gets completed. Okay. And I want to cover all the perks that I offer. So like t-shirts or stickers or stuff like that. I just kind of guesstimate what that's going to be. and. That's good. So far, I haven't lost anything, even the Kickstarter stuff. So, yeah, I find your artwork super interesting, and I, I was wondering, <laughs> you know, I haven't really looked at a lot of the physical books um, as far as like who does the art for you. Do you just end up um, commissioning somebody? Yes, I end up commissioning someone. So, like the first book, uh, my brother knew somebody who liked to do art, so I contacted him and had him do the first, you know, Python one hundred and one. Cover. And I really liked how that turned out, but since then, I don't know. He doesn't seem to take the take my art project seriously enough, so I have dropped him and started using other artists that I've found. But I see this change in the style with, say, Report Lab and then your WX Python book. So that's a different, yeah, different artist then. Yeah, yeah. So the Python two hundred one and the WX, the latest uh, GUI applications with WX Python book, those are both done by the same artist. And she's a she's a nice lady from I believe the Ukraine or in that area, and her artwork is amazing. I really like what she does, and yeah, a lot of detail. <laughs> yeah, and the report lab one I don't remember where she's from, but that was another nice lady who I think is international, and her work was spectacular too. I really liked how she she would light the scenes in her artwork, and so I was excited to work with her to get a neat cover done. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't think about that whole process involved in that, but that makes sense. And then you got to get a contractor license with them and, and so forth. So you've been putting them out with a uh, lean pub. Is that right? Yes. So uh, lean pub has, has really helped a lot. So when I wrote Python 101, I, I bootstrapped it all myself and used a variety of, uh, I think it was restructured text and Calibre or Calibre. How do you pronounce that? Yeah. The that, Windows yeah. conversion okay. tool. Yeah. Okay. I did that. For making ebooks and such. Yes. Right. Yeah. It was, it was, it could convert restructured text to EPUB and Kindle Mobi versions, basically. And they worked okay, but. No, what I was wondering about is this part of the process. And, and I was wondering if, if Report Lab was a tool that you used for creating books. I know it's mostly for creating PDFs in general. You can definitely create longer forms in it, but I was wondering about your process of, of, you know, creating your books and, you know, what that tool chain looks like. And you're kind of starting to dive into it already. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was my original tool chain. And then I found out about lean pubs 
and they use Markdown instead of structured text. Oh, okay. They can basically take your Markdown and convert it into PDF, EPUB, and uh, Mobi. And the, the huge benefit for me is that they also created a really good uh, table of contents, which was a huge pain to do in restructured text. So at least I, it was for me when I was trying to figure it out. Yeah. And they just automatically create it. So. Oh, cool. That's nice. That saves a lot of effort. <laughs> Having tried to, uh, I, I worked with this environmental science company, which is partly why I wanted to talk to you about the report lab, but I was involved in helping them restructure all of their reporting to kind of modernize it a little bit and make it look, you know, yeah, I don't know, just not times new Roman <laughs> and, you know, just look like, looked like something that, you know, they spent some money on and, and, and so forth. So I ended up creating all these word templates and a big part of that is like getting into all the styles and creating all these things that will, you know, go across it. And a big part of that is then, okay, with the table of contents oh. and <laughs> making sure that those styles are updated and they all kind of work together. And so it's, yeah, it could be a lot of headaches. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a major pain. <laughs> You know, I, I still get people who ask me, where's the where's the index? And I'm like, I don't have an index. It's a PDF. You can search for what you want. Yeah. Command F or <laughs> Control F, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, LeanPub does, did say that in, within a year or so, they're planning to add indexing capabilities to their process somehow with Markdown. I don't know how they're going to do it. And if they do it and it's easy to do, I'm going to start adding indexes to my books. But right now, it's just... There's just not a good way to do it easily. So, okay. After you got some initial interest in it, and obviously that article was doing really well on your site. Now that the book's come out, how's the feedback been about the book? Oh, we partly have it. It's not my bestseller, but a lot of people really like it. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. I think the only feedback I've had that was somewhat kind of negative was that I wasn't always consistent in some of my code examples. So, Okay. You know, I, I wish someone else had told me that while I was writing it, because I would have fixed that. So now, you know, it's been two years. I'm probably going to go through it and fix that anyway, because that bugs me. But that, that shouldn't take, you know, that, that's like a minor issue. It's like, oh, I didn't name the, all the variables the same across all the examples or, you know, whatever. So so like a minor revision <laughs> compared to like a whole. Yes, I'd go through and I go through and modernize it. So it uses F strings and stuff like that. Probably be what I would do. Yeah, cool. It has a similar structure, you know, a little bit in in the sense to your Python 101 book, in the sense that you, you know, show all of the, the tech that's there for Report Lab, but then you also dive into all these other tools that, you know, kind of are related to PDF creation and PDF editing and and modifying. And so, what are some of the other tools that you cover beyond Report Lab in the book? Yeah, so I I go ahead and talk about um, how you'd use. PyPDF2 and PDFRW to split, merge, and combine pages. PDFRW is kind of cool in that it integrates with Report Lab so that you can create a Report Lab you know, object in memory, and then you can use PDFRW to modify it in different ways. What are the things that it adds that way? I think it allows you to like shrink the page dynamically, so you can put like four pages on one page and stuff like that. The, the author... Uh, likened it, the author of PDFRW, uh, I think his name is Patrick Maupin, said that um, it kind of covers the Report Lab's page catcher technology, which I'm not very familiar with. It lets you do fancy things to PDFs in memory. But, cool. But the page catcher part is like part of Report Lab Plus. That's why I'm not really familiar with it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and maybe we could talk about that just a little bit. There is a the open source version of Report Lab and then Report Lab Plus um, is their paid version, you know, like like a large corporation would use. Mm-hmm. Do you? What are the kinds of things that it adds? So I think the big thing for Report Lab Plus is that they've created an RML Report Lab markup language for it, so you can create templates in kind of an XML format to create your pages instead of in Python. Okay. You know directly, and they have taken some of that RML and put it into their open source version but it's nowhere near complete compared to plus version. I think there's examples of what it looks like on their website. So you can kind of see what you're missing out on by not purchasing plus. But I think what that does is it lets people who aren't, you know, Python programmers create PDF documents easily. That makes sense. Kind of allowing, 
again, talking about abstraction, this layer of, mm-hmm. of uh, just like working with a markup language as opposed to having to actually build like the actual objects and, and that sort of stuff inside of Python. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Report Lab uses this concept of, they call it platypus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so Report uh, Lab has two concepts, really. It's got um, the canvas, which is your low-level interface with the PDF. And you kind of like draw on it, kind of like you would in Notepad, so to speak. Because you're drawing text and you can draw lines, but you're telling Report Lab, I want to draw at XY coordinate to XY coordinate, basically, when it comes to figures and whatnot. Platypus is a goofy, I don't know why they called it this, but it stands for page layout and typography using scripts. Okay. And what it does is it is an abstraction layer on top of their canvas code. And it lets you say, I want to create a paragraph and style it this way. So I want to be, you know, I want to style it as a heading, you know, uh, just a regular paragraph. I want to style it as italic or bold. And if I create these, these uh, paragraphs, they're, they're of a flowable type, so to speak. So anything in Platypus, let me back up. So anything in Platypus is a flowable, which means that it can flow across multiple pages. So they have the paragraph data type, the table data type, the image data type. I think they have a page break and a spacer and a couple of others. And what these allow you to do is, you know, you just create these flowables, you add them to a Python list, and you say, build my document. And it will calculate based on the letter on the page size that you've chosen how to break that up across multiple pages. Whereas, so if you're if you're doing something legal versus ENAP by eleven or E four or what yes. have you, because if you if you try to do that with the canvas, you have to know, you have to keep in your head, okay, I'm getting close to the bottom of the page and I need to create a new page break here. So you know if you if you're like loading up a database of you know ten thousand lines that you want to put in a table with the canvas. You're going, to, you're going to be hard-pressed to say, I know this is where I want to break my, my table. Yeah. Because some, you know, some tables have a whole bunch of content in one, in one uh, row versus another row. So trying to figure out how to do that intelligently is a pain in the butt. But Platypus takes care of that for you and will break the table or the, the huge amount of text you've just copied in up for you and break it the way it should be broken. Nice. Yeah, I can see that being super useful. That was one of the problems I kept running into in reformatting these documents for these, you know, these word templates for this, these science reports and so forth. And I would have to create versions of tables with like different column amounts and and so Mm -hmm. forth. And, and still in word, it would still like try to poke its out the edge of the screen, (laughs) you know, it's so annoying. So that sounds like you, you sort of can set sort of, flowing rules i don't i'm not sure if i completely understand the the flowable concept and what the constraints are you can set margins for the document itself so you know you have a you have a let's say a letter size page you can say the margin is 36 points so in pdf world everything is measured in points so there's like 72 points in an inch and like not, I think it's 700 something for the height of a letter page versus 600 something for the width okay so if you think in points, you can say, I want my left margin to be this, my right margin to be that, my top and bottom margins to be something else. And then when you start adding flowables to it, it keeps those margins in mind so that it doesn't ever hit those margins. It'll actually cut the page break before it hits the margin. And then for the table, you can set each column width certain to be a certain size, and it will wrap it within that column width, whatever you put into the columns. Nice which can get, get kind of funky looking, but it, it works really well. Okay. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. This course fits perfectly into our main topic this week and dives into some of the tools covered at the end of the book that we're discussing. It's titled How to Work with a PDF in Python. The course is based on a real Python article by this week's guest, Mike Driscoll. And in the course, instructor Andrew Steven takes you through how to extract document information from a PDF, rotate pages, merge PDFs, split PDFs, add watermarks, and even encrypt a PDF. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to manipulate PDFs using Python. And like most of the courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and you get code examples for the techniques shown. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com.
So were you using it for some some of the reporting at, at your work then? Um, at my old job, uh, the last two jobs, yes. My current job, no. But yeah, I, I used to do a, a job for a company that did explanations of benefits for different uh, for doctors and whatnot. And okay, you know, everybody has their own template for how they want their logo to be, and you know where the the to and from addresses go, and what you know, you know all that good stuff that goes on a page. Right. Some of them are really complex when you're. <laughs> You know, what columns go where and it has to be within an inch or whatever. The part lab makes that really easy, a lot easier than the way they were doing it originally. And I, I discovered that you can make report lab basically recreate any document that I, I, I have found. And I, I did probably, you know, 10 different clients while I was working there. And they were all wildly different in their specifications. What, what were the types of documents? Well, um, yeah, like I said, you got EOBs, but you also have, um, you take in XML or even mainframe data and you convert it into a standard type of EOB. That, like, we had a company standard, then we had our client standards. And everybody wanted their pages to be labeled differently with different headers and footers. And so they all looked very, they, you, you'd think that people would just use a one particular look and feel for explaining what your benefits are for, you know, like an injury or something. But everybody wants their own look, I guess. Okay. And so some would use a table and some would use, you know, like boxes on the, on the page. And so, it, you know, just wildly different. So they, they would share with you like previous versions of documents or like, like sketch up something to say, this is kind of what we want yeah. generally it to look like. They would, they would give you what they currently have because they'd hire a company to take over this part of their business. And they're like, this is what it looks like now. Use the data in, you know, JSON or whatever format it is. Make that, make that raw data look like this. And so, I would write the code that would translate it into Report Lab and make it, make it pretty again. Nice. So, do you think that Report Lab would be a good tool for data scientists? Oh yeah, I think so. I, once you get over, you know, figuring out how Report Lab works, it, I think that would be a great tool. Cool. Yeah. I um, I think about some of the the tools that I've seen to create PDFs in the past, either walking through word, like I've mentioned all those kinds of things. And in the end, it's going to be shared as a PDF because that seems to be pretty much the standard out there as far as, you know, sharing across the web and mm -hmm. the ability to, to compress it and the security kind of stuff that it can do. You know, it's just really became a standard, but probably my least favorite tool to work with from Adobe is Acrobat. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've experienced that too, but yeah, it's just super clunky and I've <laughs> wanted to find ways to just, you know, build things and create things that are repeatable. And the idea of like including Python code and the benefits that you're talking about sharing in this doctor's office, they, the data really changes depending on the patient, right? Yes. Yep. And so and then all whatever plans they have um, and what, you know, like what, what's available to them so that you're reading in data from a database and then you, um, the program's able to run. Like how often would you have to like update it once it got working? You know, as long as the, you know, the client kept their data format the way they were supposed to, I didn't have to update it hardly at all. Okay. So the biggest problem you might have is like just formatting issues and things that were input improperly. Yes. Like, like if someone gave us, Occasionally, they would make a, a name too long. You know, like some people just have really long last names or first names. And so you might have to figure out what to do in those situations, stuff like that. Yeah. Like the way Adobe does it, which is really ugly, is that they just change the font size. <laughs> like when a form is filled in. Yeah. That's always been something that um, I was creating. I was helping these companies try like these very small businesses. And it's just me, one man shop mostly helping out friends and then kind of like getting involved with other, these small environmental science companies. And a lot of them wanted to move beyond using paper um, because they were doing this kind of really ridiculous process of taking clipboards out into the field and gathering scientific data, writing it on pieces of paper, trying to remember some of it in their head because they would like skip steps and so forth because partly they knew that when they got back to the office, they would either rewrite it into an Excel or they would just scan that ugly dirt covered 
document <laughs> in and then turn it into a PDF, you know? And so I was like talking to them and they really wanted to have something out in the field. And so we started working with like an iPad and some PDF fill in tools. And then I would just try to convert things and do it all inside of Acrobat to create the fields and create that sort of stuff and mm -hmm. um, to allow them to sort of fill it in. But it ended up, you know, a lot of work for me kind of just trying to lay it out and make it look, you know, sort of consistent. Yeah. Um, but I would always run into those dumb things of like, Oh, the fonts are going to change size and, and, and so forth. And so one of the things I'm kind of excited about with report lab is the idea of automatically generating these things and it being consistent. Like you said, like using this point based system to choose where things are laid out on the page. And I guess that's partly because it's all vector based, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that you can sort of, you know, enlarge and zoom in and it doesn't like pixel out but anyway so when i was thinking about that i was like okay well how is a uh, report lab at creating forms i haven't done a lot of fillable forms with report lab but i think it does provide it yeah i even have an article on my blog it's been a while since i've done it so yes you can totally do it i think the problem that i run into is that adobe shows them but not necessarily other uh, pdf readers or maybe even not even Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I created them and it looked fine on my Windows machine. And then I try to load the same PDF on, you know, Linux or Mac. And I, if I don't have Adobe installed, it doesn't look right. Or it's like the fields are invisible or something. And I don't know if that's Report Lab's mm. fault. Okay. Or if that's something else. But Yeah, there's some flavors of PDFs then, it sounds like. Yeah, I have seen, somebody asked me like in the last two months if Report Lab supported PDFA. And I'm like, I don't even know what PDFA is. So I don't know the huh. answer to that. I, yeah, I was at a, a law firm and I was working with them and again, working in PDFs and kind of, you know, their sort of documentation world. And we ended up going down this a little bit of rabbit hole of sort of PDF versions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even it's so many years ago, I can't really remember them. So even back, you know, like five years ago, mm -hmm. there, there were definitely three or four different flavors of, of, you know, things that the PDF could do or couldn't do. Mm. So I guess that would be something we'd, I'd have to look at in report labs documentation and <laughs> make sure. And then, you know, the tools that we were using to fill stuff in on the, on the iPad that were really nice were like this thing called PDF expert, which is a, mm. you know, kind of a nice filling tool, you know, kind of stuff. It would have its own sort of document storage mm -hmm. tool and you could kind of create things that were a bit like templates but probably my favorite thing was it would do, you know, signature capture mm. just right on the iPad. Kind of like how, you know, like Square or those other kind of payment processing things, it pops up a big thing where you can just use your finger to sign. And yeah. And that was really nice to be able to create these kind of end tools. So I'll have to play with it some more. Yeah, I can't comment if it does that kind of stuff, but you know, it does it has all the basic fields that you need to be able to use to create a, a fillable form. Well, anything to to speed up the process, even if I had to walk it through Adobe and check on some things and label mm -hmm. through some things or whatever, it would be fine or save it again would be fine. I know that filling in the forms electronically with Python seems to be a little awkward. I, I, I tried uh, yesterday yeah. uh, looking at the chapter in your book and I could not get those tools to really work. I think it might be the, the middleware that everybody's using in that case is is a little awkward. It, it you know, it kind of installs on its own, uh, but everything would just freeze when it went to fill in <laughs> the blanks. Yeah. I had a lot of trouble with that chapter where I, I could get it to work on one system and not on another. And I think I put a warning in that chapter. Like this, this is really buggy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried like three different kinds of ways to do it. And some of them work for some fillable forms and other forms don't work at all. And I don't know why, why that is. That's strange. Yeah, it was really weird. That's okay. I was using, again, most of these were to be filled out in the field. Yeah. I could see how, you know, generally your solution, which made the most sense to me, if you're creating something that's a bit of a template and then you're filling it in was to kind of almost do it in a layered mm -hmm. kind of style and just sort of paint it on it, if you will, and then flatten it to use uh, Photoshop terms. I guess that's actually a term in, in PDFs too, but that seems to be, yeah, that would, yeah, work. That would work. Okay. I was, I was taking the watermark approach of just taking two layers and slapping them on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was helping somebody with like you have a a real Python article talking about um, PD, PyPDF two. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it it also mentions some other stuff. And I was helping uh, one of our video instructors convert it into a video course, and he was having some trouble like doing some some watermark stuff and so forth. And so I helped him create like a mm-hmm. you know something that was a little more opaque <laughs> and so forth. So it just just didn't write over it and um and. I don't know. I find that stuff really interesting. There's some some nice other additional tools out there for for working with them. So Report Lab seems like it has some relation to a tool like LaTeX or I don't even not positive if that's how you pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced LaTeX or LaTeX. Yeah. What's what are some differences there? Like what, what is the intent behind LaTeX? My understanding is what LaTeX or LaTeX or whatever is was originally designed so that you could add mathematical formulas and kind of lay out your page because it was, it was like a scientist who, or somebody like that who, who created it so that they could, you know, supposedly easily create the research papers. Yeah. I haven't looked into how all that works, but I do know that the, the huge thing I, you know, I've seen over and over again, the reason people still love it is that it gives you really granular control over where all the elements go on your page and it does really good with complex mathematical formulas which can always look really weird and be formatted kind of weird right yeah like in word it doesn't always play nice with some of those formulas and i think latex solves that issue if you're if you're doing that kind of stuff i haven't done that with the program so i can't really comment if that that works really well in there but i don't know why it wouldn't work really uh, at least well enough (laughs) yeah yeah so what are some of the other tools that you cover in the book. I know you mentioned PDF2. What else is in there? Yeah, PDF Miner is used for text extraction. So, Okay. Give me an example. When you go to open up a PDF and you want to get the text out of the document, PDFs like store the text in a really weird way. It's not like, like it is in Word or you know even just opening a text file is where you just open it and say read. You try to read a PDF file, it's a binary file. And so you get all this junk out and you're like, what the heck? How do I read this? PDF Miner is specifically used to like search for the text and it'll tell you at what, what pixel position, position or maybe it's point position it found that line of text. The problem with PDF Miner is that because of the way PDFs are saved, sometimes, you know, what looks right on the page, like line one, two, and three in the binary form, it's like one lines one, three, and four, and then number two is next. And so when it extracts it, the lines of text are like jumbled. Okay. So you end up doing some cleanup after the fact because PDF miner, you know, it's it's mining for the text, but it doesn't always get it in a really great way. And you have to do some polishing afterwards to make it work right. Another tool uh, was written on top of it called Slate, which makes PDF miner a lot nicer to work with. But I think Slate never got around to being converted to Python 3. So it's kind of, it's kind of dead now. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, so I also talk about PyFPDF in one of my chapters. PyFPDF, I believe is based on PHP and it's kind of PHP's report labs for lack of a better way to describe it. But somebody took it and wrote a Python wrapper around it. So you can use the FPDF package in Python to create PDFs. And, you know, I've, I thought it was a decent library. It works in a much the same way as Report Lab. I don't think its tables were as nice to work with. Okay. doesn't have the flowable stuff quite as much. It does have flowables, but the, uh, the, your ability to tweak them the way you want is nowhere near as rich. And, you know, uh, Report Lab supports barcodes and all kinds of other, like, um, odd off-ball cases that uh, FPDF just doesn't, or at least the wrapper that they created does not cover. So it's just not as full-featured. It's not a, it's not bad at all, but it's just not nowhere near as full-featured as Report Lab is. That makes sense. Is that something where, similar to where we were talking about the GUIs of like a technology kind of being built on top of a technology, you hope that the development of what's happening back in PHP for the original version of the software is continuing on so that the, the Python version continues to be supported and updated. Yeah, you hope that they'll add new features and then you have to hope that the people behind PyFPDF will 
will add those features. Because just because they wrapped part of it doesn't mean that they wrapped the whole thing. Right. It it doesn't necessarily expand on <laughs> on that and have to add all the translations. That's always intriguing to me. That idea of like translating one tool into another, and definitely seems to be common in the world of PDFs. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. A couple of the other tools, you know, like the fillable form stuff that we were talking about briefly. Uh, a lot of those were kind of this idea of working with cross-platform tools, which might be partly why they broke. Might be even that 32-bit, 64-bit stuff that's happened with the Mac. I don't know, but um. Yeah, there's a, a new PDF library. I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's for extracting tables from PDFs. Oh, okay. I like what um <laughs> what Microsoft has done recently with Excel. I haven't played with it a lot, but the idea of like taking a picture with your phone and it being able to, to grab the table in. Mm-hmm. I want to try that some more. <laughs> yeah. I haven't tried that one myself. I think it was like right after I produced this book and there was like two new releases of these new software. And I'm like, Oh man, I could make a good chapter. Yeah. Uh, Camelot. That's the name of it. This is a Python library. Yeah. Camelot PDF table extraction for humans is what it's called. Okay. And I haven't played with this one, but, Beyond, like, I tried to use it on one of mine, and it didn't work for my particular PDF. So, again, you run into these weird issues where someone has created a PDF, and you're like, I can extract that. And then you find out that they saved images to the PDF. So you're not actually trying to extract a a table. You're trying to extract a, a table from an image. Oh, like it's been saved as a JPEG or something. Yeah, it's a JPEG that's embedded in the... Or, you know, a lot of people will scan their documents to PDF. So then you, you know, basically do an OCR at that point. Right. What's coming out of the binary is just... Just an image. Just an image that you're still going to have to OCR it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Lots of things to consider. <laughs> it's a deep topic. You know, it's like so much deeper than like, I, I would think like the Python 101 kind of stuff in some ways. Yeah. I, you know, I had to work with so many different PDFs and now I'm like... Okay, why can't I extract this? Oh, it's a PDF, it's a PDF with, with a bunch of embedded images, or it's a PDF that has a security applied to it. So now you have to learn how to enter a password or something. With those tools that were you were talking about for like the PDF miner and tools that were like that, are there parameters then that you can put in to have it help you with things that are you know password protected or encrypted? Yeah, uh, PyPDF too lets you decrypt if you know the password obviously if you don't then you're stuck but i think pdfrw also supports decrypting if you know the password okay i don't remember if pdf miner does or not i don't think i've looked at i don't think i've ever tried to use it on a password protected document okay that's cool i mean it's good to know so i have a few weekly questions what's something that you're excited about in the world of python again this could be like a package or an event hardware you know book or something like that yeah, well, it's kind of a kind of a mix for me. So, yeah, I've been I, I'm working on a Matplotlib chapter for my Python 101 book. So I wanted to cover graphing and how to do that. And I came across a website. I think it's called PyViz. Yeah, PyViz.org. Okay. And it lists like all kinds of Python visualization tools and how popular they are. So I got really excited because I'm like, wow, there's a bunch of tools I've never heard of that will make for you know lots of good articles. Or, or, you know, even a book idea, maybe. Yeah. And so, you know, just learning that Python, I know I already knew that Python visualization was huge, but I didn't realize that there were dozens of packages on that topic. And so you know, that that's exciting. I'm personally excited about you know, learning uh, OpenCV with Python, even though that's, you know, it's kind of old at this point, but it's getting used in so many new and fascinating ways. So this is computer vision, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Is there a certain, like, subset of that that you're intrigued about or projects that you'd be intrigued about for it? I can think of farming and those kind of tools being added to, you know, helping with automating tractors and things like that. Yeah, that that, that does interest me to some degree, but you know, I, I read a lot of Edie and Rosebrock's uh, tutorials and from Pi Image Search and, you know, just seeing him identify objects on his desk or you know, identifying cars in the street or the parking lot or which car parking spots are empty. I don't know. I just find that really interesting. I'd like to learn how that all works. Yeah, cool. I guess that maybe leads into the next question, which is, is there a particular thing that you want to learn next in Python? Yeah, I mean, that's 
Uh, those are kind of the two big ones I'm looking at right now is how do we do image processing with Python, both, you know, like, with like Pello, uh, the Python imaging library, and scikit-learn or scikit-image or, or OpenCV. Okay, cool. Is it, When you were looking through that data visualization site, was there a particular package that you saw that was new that was like, that really stood out to you? I'm interested in finding out more about this Holo Views one from Conda. Okay. And Altair looks kind of interesting as well. Yeah, I want to get that guy on to talk. Yeah. Okay, cool. This one is a question that it's kind of an ongoing one that I've had about learning how to basically to teach yourself more about Python by reading actual code and the documentation for that code. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you have a, a suggestion for a particular uh, Python package that if someone were to look at the code itself that is well structured in a way that could teach someone a lot about uh, how to you know create a well-formed package and, and so forth and kind of help you know, them get to be a better mm-hmm. uh, coder by reading the code. Yeah, well, what I normally do, because I, I, I do a lot of beginning tutorials, is I like to look at the, the Python core source code. I think you can learn. I think you can learn a ton from that. You can see how Python itself works under the covers doing that. Okay. Um, I know a lot of people still point at uh, requests, and now there's HTTPX, I believe. Those are probably good ones to look at. Um, I've looked at SQL Alchemy's code, and I think that's it's usually above my head, but I, it's a really interesting way to learn how these really popular projects have laid out their code. Yeah, I think the the reading the Python code is is really kind of it's kind of recursive in a way that you're, you're kind of diving into that stuff. But uh, even the that along with the documentation, I think a lot of people skip past that in their in their pursuit to learn. They want the resource to just be you know this tutorial or this book. Uh, but very often just yeah just but uh, yeah going into the code itself if, if you're using idle it has a class browser and a module browser and you can just dive right in and figure out how does this work behind the covers or how does idle itself work and i'm like there's all this information right there at your fingertips that you're just ignoring so yeah i like to look at that myself yeah cool well i want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me yeah it was good to, good to be here and uh, good luck with uh, your updates to your Python 101 book. I'm excited to, to hear about it. Yeah, thanks. I hope a lot of people enjoy it. All right. I want to thank Mike Driscoll again for coming on the show. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.